Hey, one of the things that I find peculiar about Christians is that we often resist the God we say we trust. I mean, we put it on our money, right? In God we trust. But as Christians, we often resist that very same God that we say we trust. And let's just be honest. I mean, we're in church, so we should be honest, right? How many of you would say that at some point in your life you've had an an internal battle with God and and you found yourself resisting the very same God that you say you trust? And let's, let's, let's be honest to make everybody feel comfortable. Show of hands if you've all right, so some of you, again, we, we have this conversation every time I ask you to raise your hand about something. Some of you are liars, and eventually I'm going to do a series about lying, and you all are all going to repent, and it's going to be great. <clears throat> but I think that's often the case, is we find ourselves resisting this God that we say we trust, and it doesn't make any sense to us, does it? It makes absolutely zero sense for us to resist the very God that we say we trust. Now, if you're not a Christian, you have a word for that. It's hypocrisy, that, that we don't actually walk or talk sometimes, and, and, and we own that. But, you know, they can be a little bit merciful to us because it's very difficult. Let's think about it. I mean, in reality, it's very difficult to surrender your life to a God that you've never seen. It's very difficult to surrender your life to a God who, who speaks through, through your conscience or speaks through ancient literature and speaks to your heart. It's very difficult to surrender to a God you've never seen. But the interesting thing is, and in, in, in the weeks leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, there were three characters whose lives intersected with the life of Jesus. And each of these three characters had very specific agendas. They had a specific agenda that put them at odds with God, more specifically put them at odds with Jesus. And as we're going to see in this series, The Boys of Easter, there's a little bit of all of them in each of us. But the interesting thing, and this to me is fascinating, is that their stories of resistance actually illustrate the futility of resisting God. Their stories of resistance actually illustrate to us the futility of, re- of resisting God. And, and if you've been around church very long, you know that your story of resistance is also an illustration in resistance and, and, and the futility that comes with resisting God. In fact, I think all of our lives, uh, your life, my life, everyone's life, if there is resistance... It's an illustration of the ultimate futility that comes in resisting God. And the first character we're going to talk about in this series that we're going to talk about today is a guy named Joseph Caiaphas. If you've been in church, you know him as as simply Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest during the time of Jesus. He was the most powerful, the most influential person in Jerusalem and Judea and what we would consider ancient Israel. He was the connecting point between Israel and, and, and and Rome. He was the person that would communicate with Pilate or, or whoever was the leader of the Roman garrison at, at that time. He was, he was the guy. But even more significant than that, Caiaphas was a part of a family. And it, it's hard to describe the significance of this, but Caiaphas was part of a family that controlled the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that controlled the temple and, and politics and, and the region and, and the power of the temple for, for 40 years. His his father-in-law was a high priest and five of his brother-in-laws were high priests and so they have this kind of like dynasty and and they have all of this influence and they have all of this power and they have this extraordinary extraordinary wealth because there was amazing financial perks that came with being at the epicenter of religion the Jewish religion in the first century And and the reason for that was because Jews all over the world paid what was called a temple tax 
and, and so the equivalent of millions upon millions upon millions of dollars flow into this 32-piece acre of real estate known as the temple. Now, everybody in, in, <coughs> in the world paid this temple tax. Not just people that lived in the vicinity of, of Jerusalem. Everybody that was a Jew paid this temple tax. In fact, there was so much money that would come into the temple because of the temple tax that there were Roman provinces around the empire of Rome where the governors of those areas, they would try to pass laws that would prevent Jews from paying the temple tax because there was so much money leaving their area, leaving their control and going into this temple. And so, so they wanted to control that as much as possible. And so Caiaphas... The high priest, he had extraordinary power, and he had extraordinary influence, and he had extraordinary access to extraordinary wealth. And things went just fine for Caiaphas, the high priest, until a carpenter turned rabbi showed up on the scene. When Jesus showed up, <clears throat> the problem was that Caiaphas has all his power, he's got all his wealth, he's got all his influence, he, he's in the family that controls everything. And when Jesus shows up, the problem with Jesus is the crowds. It's the crowds. It's not what he taught because people taught all kinds of crazy things and, <clears throat> and they didn't really worry about it. It wasn't what he taught. It was the crowds because everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds of people. We know the story from, from growing up in the church where Jesus fed the 5,000 people. And if you've dug into it, most scholars will tell you that it wasn't 5,000 people. It was 5,000 men. They didn't count women and children. And so, so there were probably closer, you know, maybe 10,000 if, if, if every man there has a wife and maybe more than that if you count uh, children, if they've got children. So you're looking at maybe 20,000 that were there. And, and some people would say, well, you know, it was just, uh, that's hyperbole. There were only a couple of thousand people there. But it doesn't matter. Everywhere Jesus went, there were at least hundreds and often thousands of people that, that would show up. So there were these crowds. And that was a threat to Rome. And it was a threat to the Jewish system because crowds meant potential insurrection. Crowds meant division. Crowds meant that, that things might uh, go bad and, and go bad quickly because of the amount of people. You know, if, if suddenly this crowd turned on the Jewish leaders, it would not end well. If suddenly this crowd turned on the Roman garrison, it wouldn't go well. And so the Romans were concerned about the crowd. And, and Caiaphas and, and his group, his posse, they were concerned about the crowd. But everywhere Jesus went, he drew huge crowds. And Caiaphas and his group, they never drew a crowd. Unless it was a festival, and then everybody just realized that, oh, it's a festival, that, that's why they're here. And the other thing that was a problem in terms of, of Jesus and his relationship with Caiaphas was that when Jesus spoke, when Jesus acted, when he behaved, he, he spoke with such extraordinary authority. People were amazed by the authority that, that Jesus had. In fact, you remember the story of Jesus going into the temple, and he, he wreaks havoc. He goes in there and and just turns over tables, and he chases off all the money changers, and he lets the cows go, and the doves go, and all that kind of stuff. He's just wreaking havoc in there, right? You remember that story? Well, when the religious leaders who were sent by Caiaphas go and investigate this, and they approach Jesus, they didn't say to Jesus, hey, what do you think you're doing? Instead, they asked the question that they knew they needed to ask, ask and it was, who do you think you are? That was the question they asked, who do you think you are? Because Jesus acted, and he behaved with such extraordinary authority there was one other problem with jesus jesus was extraordinarily critical of the religious leaders and this is probably my favorite part of, of, of his problem with caiaphas if if you want to know what a jesus rant looks like then get your bible out later today and flip over to matthew 23 and, and you can read that um, 
but I mean, it's just a rant. Jesus goes on and on and on. I mean, he had no respect for the temple leaders because of the corruption that had, that had taken place inside of the temple, especially by the time that he shows up on the scene. And in Matthew 23, he just goes on and on and on in, in this rant against these religious leaders, including Caiaphas. And here's what he says. This kind of caps it, caps it all off. He says, you snakes, you, you brood of vipers. This is Jesus talking. You wouldn't let your kids talk to an adult like this, right? He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? In other words, Jesus says to the religious leaders, the people who get up every day and are trying to do their best, the people who get up every day and they're responsible for, for the spiritual well-being of, of other people. They're responsible for the sacrificial system uh, of animals so that people can find atonement for their sin. They're the people who are, who are the best people in the city. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you're going to hell. I mean, that's, that's what he says to them. So it's no wonder that Caiaphas has a little problem with Jesus and his authority and the crowds and his criticism uh, of everybody that, uh, that Caiaphas worked with and, and potentially had respect for it. And Jesus threatened the peace, and he threatened the peace keepers. And so all of this tension, it builds and it builds and it builds throughout the Gospels. And finally, there's a final straw moment. There's always a final straw moment, isn't there? And, and the final straw moment between Jesus and Caiaphas takes place, and, it, and it's not something that Jesus said. It wasn't that something Jesus said, it was something that Jesus did. It was not a conversation, it was not a confrontation. In fact, it was an act of compassion. It was an act of compassion, this final straw was an act of compassion, because Jesus raised someone from the dead, and not just anyone. He raised a very famous citizen in, in the city of Bethany. Uh, who did he raise from the dead? Lazarus, that's right, yeah, Lazarus, and so... This was the final straw for, for Caiaphas and the religious leaders. What was the pinnacle of, of Jesus' miracles? What was the most amazingly impossible? Because not only had Lazarus died, Lazarus had been what? He'd been buried. He'd been buried. That's right. People in Bethany, they had been to the funeral. They, they had been to the funeral, and the next thing you know, they see Lazarus walking around. And so this was like over the top. And, and I mean, the crowds, they just swelled, and they swelled, and they swelled. And they realized that the religious leaders, and Caiaphas in particular, they realized that their strategy was failing. Their, their strategy was, was to discredit Jesus publicly. That, that was their, always their strategy. That's when, when you read the Gospels, they're constantly trying to ask Jesus these, these trick questions and get him to, to, to fall into to saying something that he shouldn't have said. And <clears throat> so you read this, and they always ask a question, and Jesus comes back with kind of a snappy comeback, and the people always go, yeah, go Jesus, right? And they move on. Because that's what they were trying to do. The point of those questions was to try to divide Jesus from the crowd. Because if Jesus loses the crowd, then Jesus is no longer a threat. He's no longer a threat to the peace that, to, that they had established with Rome. And he's no longer a threat to the Jewish way of life. And so, for example, after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, here's what John, who, who saw all of this, the gospel writer John saw all of this, was an eyewitness to all of this. Here's what he writes. He says this in chapter 12. He says, now the crowd, see there it is again, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to spread the word. So this, this crowd of people that knew about this, this miracle, they're telling everybody that, that they can see. Because honestly, if we saw somebody raise somebody from the dead, we'd probably tell people about it too. And so, so they're telling all of these people. And so it continues, it says, so many people, 
many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So now you've got a crowd, and that's what they're worried about. And now you've got an even bigger crowd and an even bigger crowd. And the Pharisees and the leaders of the temple, they're just throwing their hands up and they're going, what, where is this going? How is this ever going to end? <coughs> Excuse me. And so the Pharisees have kind of a moment where they say to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Our strategy to try and discredit Jesus, our, our, our strategy by asking him these trick questions, it's getting us nowhere. And look at this, and I, I love this part. It says, look how the whole world has gone after him. I love that part. Because you need to know this. Fast forward way ahead. In the book of Acts, <clears throat> the book of Acts tells us what happened after, in the church after Jesus was raised from the dead. And so the book of Acts tells us that Luke, who investigated all of these things, Luke tells us that many, many priests and many of the Pharisees would later become followers of Jesus. And that's how John has the inside track in all of this information. Because later on, when John is investigating, and, and Luke is investigating some of these priests that eventually followed Jesus, and some of these Pharisees that eventually became followers of Jesus, they probably said to John, Hey, John, can, you can't believe this meeting. We were so frustrated with, with Jesus. It was like no matter what we did, no matter what we said, no matter what we came up with, Jesus just made us look like fools and over and over and over again. And so John writes this in his gospel. And then, you know, they probably said at one point in one of those meetings, said, look, the whole world has gone after him. And this is on the hind side of this, on the back side of this. And they say, they probably laughed out loud when they said that. Because, two, because little did they know that 2,000 years later, come on, I mean, a third, a third of the world's population declares that Jesus is somebody special. They think their whole world went after him. A third of the world's population declares that Jesus is Lord. They had no idea what they were on the front end of. They had no idea whatsoever. And so immediately following the miracle of Lazarus, Lazarus comes back to life, he's raised from the dead. There's another conversation that takes place, and John records it. And he says this, he says, Then, it's right after they found out, <clears throat> it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And we read that line, that verse, and it means absolutely nothing to us. But let me tell you how significant this is. This is three different groups here. And there's a, there's a little bit of crossover, but this is three different groups, and they don't get along. They don't agree politically. They don't agree theologically. The Sadducees that are part of this, they, they didn't believe in, in, the, uh, in the resurrection. They didn't think there was such a thing. And so they didn't agree theologically. The Pharisees, they thought maybe there might be, but, but they weren't sure. They, they don't agree about anything. They don't agree with with how the nation of Israel should relate to Rome. There's nothing that these three groups relate on. It, it would be as big a deal to us as if the, the Senate and the House, the Supreme Court, the, the Republicans and the Democrats and the Supreme Court all got together and they agreed on something. I mean, think about that. Like, we, we sit here and think, that's never going to happen, right? That's, that's what these three groups getting together was like. It was never going to happen, but that's how big of a deal this was to them. That's how significant, excuse me, that's how significant this was to them. That's how big of a threat that they viewed Jesus to be. And in this meeting, they, they asked the question, they said, what are we accomplishing? In other words, what are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, I mean, this is crazy. The harder we try, the bigger the crowds get. The, the, the more we, we go after him, the more people come to him. What are we accomplishing? And then it says this, it says, here is this man performing many signs. 
if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. To which we would say, yeah, that's kind of the point, right? Keep, keep doing all this and, and everybody will believe in him. And says everyone will believe in him and then. And then what? Because there's always a then what, isn't there? It says because in their heart of hearts, they, they, they knew. In their heart of hearts, there, there was something of, about this that they knew that they should pay attention to. In, in their heart of hearts, they knew that, Jesus, that to resist Jesus was to resist God. But, but there was something, and, and this is where it gets really relevant and practical for all of us. There was something that was so important to them that to follow Jesus, to embrace this carpenter turned rabbi, to embrace this man who, who would claim to be the Savior and eventually claim to be the Savior of the world, to embrace Jesus as who he claimed to be meant that they would have to let go of something that was extraordinarily important to them. In their case, their power and their popularity and their wealth. They, they knew what they needed to do, but it was just going to cost too much. They knew how they needed to respond, but, but the price was just too high. And so it continues. It says, everyone will believe in him and then, and here's the then what, the Romans will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Because if we don't do something, we're going to lose everything that's important to us. And there we are. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, it's always going to cost you something. When you decide to follow Jesus, it's always going to cost you something. In fact, as a Christian, when you finally decide or when you go from season to season, when, when things that come up are more important to you than, than your relationship with God, every single time you decide to put Jesus front and center in your life, Every time I choose to do that, every time you choose to do that, it's going to cost us something. This is why so many of you have resisted church for so long. And, and I totally get it. One, one of the reasons we resist church, and this will seem silly and stupid, and in the grand scheme of things, it's not really be a big deal at all, but, but it's, it's, I think it, it illustrates the point here. One of the reasons that people resist church is because they have to give up their Sunday morning. They have to give up their, their, their coffee on Sunday morning. They have to give up, you know, it's the one morning that I'm able to sleep in. It's the one morning I don't have to get up and go to work. And, and so, so we resist church, and it's like, it's like, you know, our wives want to go, and then our children want to go, and our children want their, their, their moms to go, and the next thing you know, it's like, here we are. And then the church is just going to want my money, and then they're going to want me to volunteer, and, and, I don't, and I don't want any part of that. I, I just don't want to be a part of that. So I get it. At, at, at the top level, at the surface level, at some point all along the way, deciding to choose to follow Jesus is going to cost you something. Middle school, high school students, listen to me on this. <clears throat> this is why some of you that used to be involved in youth group, maybe you were involved in kids' church, why, why you don't come to youth group anymore. Because it's going to cost you something. And every time you come to youth group, this, this idea of, of putting Jesus front and center in your life comes up and... and, and you know it's going to cost you something. Maybe it's going to cost you some friendships. Maybe it's going to cost you a relationship. Maybe it's going to cost you some popularity at school. You're going to, you're going to lose whatever street cred you think you have. And so to make Jesus the Lord of your life is going to cost you something. Look, it always is going to cost us something. And we know what we need to do, right? We know we need to follow Jesus, but, but the price is just so high. And that's the tension, isn't it? That, that's, that's the tension. That's where, where they found themselves. They know what they need to do, but, but the price is just too high. I mean, so they ask the question, what do we do with Jesus? Everybody's following Jesus. Well, you know, he raised a man from the dead. Well, that ought to be your first clue. If, if somebody raises somebody from the dead, you, you just get in line and you follow him, right? This isn't rocket science, right? But, but 
what had become life to them, what had become the center of gravity for them, what had become personally so important to them and so precious that the thought of giving it up, they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. And so then one of them, and, and this is where we're introduced to Caiaphas in the story, then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up and he said, because there's all this commotion, there's all this argument, hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to stop him? There's, what, what should we do? Caiaphas speaks up and he finally says, be quiet. All of you be quiet. You know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. None of you know anything. You, you, you uh, Sanhedrin, you don't know anything. Pharisees, you don't know anything. Priests, you don't know anything. None of you all know anything at all. Here's what you don't understand. He says, you do not realize that it would be better for you. It would be better for you. You do not realize group of powerful people, of wealthy people, of influential people. You do not realize it would be better for you that one man die. Forget all this trick question stuff. Forget all this trying to separate the crowd from him stuff. Forget all of this trying to trip him up. It would be better for you that one man die. And he says that. And I think as soon as he says that, he realizes the words that have come out of his mouth. It would be better for one man to die. And so he says, for the people, right? I mean, for the people, it would be better for one, the whole nation, if one man died. Not about us. It it wouldn't just be better for us, because it's not about us. It wouldn't be better for the wealthy and the influential and the powerful people. It would be better for, for the people. In other words, guys, this isn't complicated. If we get rid of one man, problem solved. If we get rid of this one guy, we are better. I mean, the nation is better off. Now, John is, again, he's an old man when he's writing this, and so he's looking back. Many, many, many years have passed by since he's had this experience, and, and he's had these incredible conversations. And, and John writes in his gospel at this point, and this is, I think, so powerful. He says, he, being Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for, for that nation. And I think John's probably got a grin on his face when he says this, because he like, wow, they had no idea what they were on the front end of. And not only for, for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them back together as one. And John is looking back on this. And I think he's looking back finally and he's smiling and he's thinking, they plotted to destroy Jesus. They plotted to crucify Jesus. They plotted thinking that they could put an end to, to this crazy Jesus movement. And, all they, and, and little did they know that, that as they resisted him, that they participated in the will of God. As they re- resisted Jesus, they actually facilitated the will of God because in the end, his death actually multiplied his influence. And that's why I said up front, at the end of the day, I think you know, my life and your life, our, our lives will ultimately illustrate the futility of resisting God. We will each illustrate the futility of resisting God, and, and here's why. Because you were not created for your own glory. You were not created for your own glory. I was not created for my own glory. We were created for God's glory. And at the end of the day, at the end, your life will in some way be a reflection of the truth and the glory of God. And so, so John writes this down, and, and I, I think he's just grinning from ear to ear. And he says, so on that day, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And John writes this, and he grinned. They thought they could take his life, but man, they were way overestimating their ability. They thought they could take his life, but they, they were way overestimating his, their authority. I mean, Jesus had addressed this. Jesus had already addressed about, you know, about taking his life. Here's what he said a few chapters before. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life 
only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. John must have grinned as he wrote, they plotted to take his life. Parents, you ever heard your kids plotting out their future? They're plotting out what they're going to do, and uh, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and, and they get all bent out of shape when you tell them, no, you're not. No, you're not. We're, we're, I'm going to do this. They're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to uh, go run away and, and whatever. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. And they get all mad. They get all bent out of shape, and, and you just kind of grin because you know it's foolish, right? You just, you just have to kind <clears> of <throat> to laugh at, at it and go, you know, they don't know. They're nine. They're, they're 10, they're 11, right? They don't know. Don't you know that our Heavenly Father, I think, grins when He watches us resist? Do you know that it both breaks His heart and He grins when He thinks that somehow we're going we're gonna to make a decision that excludes the Creator of the universe, that somehow we're going to have our way and it's just going to work out for us? <laughs> and yet, here's Caiaphas. Here's Caiaphas and, and, his, and his crew, and they have decided that they're going to take the life of Jesus. But Caiaphas had one other problem. You see, Rome wouldn't execute anybody, would not execute anybody. Rome would not execute anybody for a violation of Jewish law. If you violated uh, Jewish law, even a law that by Jewish uh, law required death from the Old Testament, they would just ignore that part and, and they wouldn't do it. And so, <coughs> excuse me. So he needed to come up with a charge that would give him the opportunity to take Jesus to Rome and say, hey, look, he hasn't just broken a Jewish law and he hasn't just broken a Roman law. In fact, he needed a charge of sedition, which meant that he needed to be able to demonstrate to Pilate that Jesus was actually a threat, not just to Jewish peace and to Roman peace, but to the Roman Empire. And Jesus had claimed that he would be king. He claimed to be a king. And that's all that Caiaphas needed. And so, so he pegged Jesus with a charge of sedition because he claimed to be king, and he had Jesus crucified. And the threat was eliminated. Their position in the nation and in the city was secure. And then just as the sun rose on the first day of, Pas of the week after Passover, there's this commotion outside of Caiaphas' home. And he hears somebody running down the hall. And they throw open the door and they say, Sir, that, that Jewish rabbi that we crucified, his body's missing. Caiaphas is like, what? What do you mean his body's missing? And then a few days later, there would be reports and sightings of, uh, of all around the area of Jesus walking around. And a few weeks later, Jesus' closest followers, they would come out of hiding, and they would walk into the streets of Jerusalem, and they would say, you crucified him, but, we, but God has raised him, and we know this because we have seen him. And suddenly, there were crowds, and crowds, and crowds of people. And they aren't rallying around the person of Jesus now, now they're rallying around the name of Jesus and, and they're rallying around the, the reputation of Jesus and they're rallying around the, the resurrection of Jesus. And Caiaphas and his cronies, they realize in this moment that he's done more in his dying than he did in his living and we were not able to take his life. And you know what happened? Years later, Caiaphas lost his place. And years later, the Jewish people lost their temple. And as what has happened time after time after time, those who would attempt to stand against, against Jesus and thwart the will of God simply became footnotes in the story of Jesus. And Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, he's simply that, a footnote in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what does any of that have to do with all of us? 
everything. Because there's a little Caiaphas in all of us. There's a little Caiaphas in me that says preserve at all costs. Preserve at all costs. Preserve reputation. Preserve that relationship that you know you shouldn't be in, but but it just means too much right now. So you do anything to preserve it. Preserve anything and everything, right? Preserve at all costs. You know, whatever it is that's at the center of your life, preserve that. It's it's the thing that you have replaced God with. For students, maybe it's your GPA, and, and maybe you even have to cheat to maintain that GPA, but you're not going to allow your GPA to suffer, so you just say preserve, right? Preserve, preserve, preserve. There's something in all of us that says that. But I want you to hear one thing this morning, and, and if you've fallen asleep, this is where you need to wake back up, all right? Whatever you have replaced God with in your life, whatever you have placed in the center of your life other than God, it is already diminishing in value and significance. Whatever it is, and I can prove it to you. You want to say, how can you prove it? Well, think about this. Your greatest regrets and my greatest regrets, they are connected to attempts to preserve something that's not even a part of your life anymore. Think about that. Think about what your greatest regret is, and I, and I can almost guarantee you that it is connected to something where you tried to preserve something and that something is not even a part of your life anymore. Your greatest regrets were an attempt to, to preserve a relationship that, that, you, that you didn't have any business preserving. And you clung tightly to it. And now you don't even have that relationship anymore, right? That was the case with Caiaphas. He was trying to, to hold on to something that was already losing value and significance. He was already losing his place and he clung to it. He was losing his place every single day and he didn't know it until it was gone. And here's why. Because the little gods with a little G, they always disappoint. The little gods, they always disappoint. That that thing that you place in in your life in the place of God, it will always, always disappoint. And and, and here's the problem. The, The pressure to preserve that thing, that relationship, whatever it is, that pressure to preserve the little gods will eventually drive you to self-destructive behavior. The pressure that you're going to feel to try and preserve that, to preserve that little God, will ultimately drive you to to self-destructive behavior that hurts you and hurts the people around you. Because God has a plan for your life. And God has a will for your life. And to put anything in the center of your life other than your Creator, other than your Heavenly Father, sets you up for that that self-destructive behavior. Think about this. This is amazing. This is incredible to me. Caiaphas, the high priest, He's the high priest, and as the high priest, he had access to to, um, the oldest existing copy of the law of God. Uh, We're talking about, you know, when when God said to Moses, thou shall not murder, and and he wrote it down in stone, and and then people eventually copied that down and copied that down. (coughs) Excuse me. Caiaphas had access to the oldest existing copy of that. It, It was his job as the high priest to be the keeper of that, to preserve that, to make sure that everybody followed that, and yet... Caiaphas had an innocent man murdered. Why? Because our capacity for sin and evil is extraordinary when we are trying to preserve something in the place of God. That's why your greatest regret, my greatest regret, is connected to to a season of our life, a relationship in our life, where we are trying to prop up something that should have never been at the center of our lives to begin with. The little gods always disappoint. And I understand why we, why we Christians resist the God that we say we trust. I get it, because surrender is terrifying. 
Surrender is terrifying. But the story of Caiaphas reminds us of something that we should never forget. And it's this. That while saying yes to God will cost you something, saying no will always cost you more. Saying yes to God will cost you something. it's, It's going to. But saying no will always cost you more. And here's the kicker. Saying no will cost you more, including what you've already put in place of God to begin with. So here's the question I want, I want to leave you with that I want you to think about this week. What have you put in the place of God in your life? What is, what is dead center other than your heavenly Father? What is the thing that you, you say, God, you're out here on the periphery, keep, help me keep this, maintain this, but don't you dare take it away from me because if you do, I'm done with you. Because that's a little God. And it will ultimately disappoint. And you will spend time and effort and energy and money trying to prop it up to keep it alive. And ultimately, it disappoints and it disappears. What are you seeking to preserve and to prop up that actually needs to be surrendered? Saying yes to God will cost you something. But saying no will cost you more including what you replaced God to begin with. And that's the lesson from the life of Caiaphas that we need to learn. One of the boys of Easter. Let me pray for us.